from the National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Students are back in school, or soon will be, and parents of public school students are, in some places, on high alert to safeguard their children from politicized agendas, especially in regards to gender identity in their school curriculum. Senior editor Joan Frawley Desmond has been following the latest developments in parental rights in California and across the country. She joins us today. But first, we turn to news from the Vatican. Roman holidays, that is, the traditional August escape from hot, humid Rome, is over, and Pope Francis has picked up a busy schedule with a four-day trip to Mongolia, continued preparations for the Synod, and the signaling of support for the cause of Dorothy Day. He's also confirmed that a sequel to La Dato Si is in the works. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. Today I'm joined by Register Senior Editor Jonathan Liedel, who's working in Rome these days. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Jeanette. Good to be with you. So we were just chit-chatting about how in August everything is closed in Rome. Coffee shops to, to restaurants <laughs> to finding an Italian tutor. It's been challenging. <laughs> <laughs> Fair Augusto is a very, it's a serious holiday here in Rome. Uh, so yes, it, it's its an interesting, I mean, on certain days the city was almost empty, uh, but as you said, things are also uh, picking back up at the Vatican. Absolutely. So Pope Francis is currently in Mongolia. Uh, he is back at his papal audiences now in the past week or two. He's picked back up with all of these um, meetings and with dignitaries and other groups, and we'll be talking about that in this in this segment. But first, I wanted to talk about a trip that you went on in August uh, up to Rimini in northern Italy uh, to a big festival, really. I mean, uh, it was a gathering of communion and liberation, and uh, strangely, at this really Italian gathering, they they focused on Dorothy Day, an American woman who died in 1980. So why is Dorothy Day, the foundress of the Catholic worker movement, a subject of discussion in Italy these days? Yeah, that's that's a great question, uh, Jeanette. And I think to, even, to set the stage even bigger, um, you know, Dorothy Day was the focus of a main stage presentation at what's called uh, the meeting, the, the meeting for friendship among peoples in Rimini. Um, which, you know, as you mentioned, is put on by Communion and Liberation. Some people might be familiar with the New York Encounter in Manhattan every February, which is put on by Communion and Liberation. Cultural event, um, kind of, you know, the, the Christian confidence that reality has something to offer us so we can look into society, we can look at the science, we can look into the literature. Um, but the Rimini meeting, j- just to be clear, is like the New York Encounter times a thousand. It has 80,000 people attending wow. this five-day festival every year. It has uh, some of the biggest names in Italian politics and culture um, and business and literature speaking at it. The, the, the president of the Republic of Italy spoke this year. Last year, Giorgio Maloney spoke. They actually had like a, a mini debate at this thing. So it's a huge stage in Italy. It's probably, even though it's put on by this Catholic movement, Communion and Liberation, uh, it's a major major focal point of the Italian press. There are over 300 credentialed journalists there. So the significance of, of Servant of God, Dorothy Day, being a main focus of discussion of an entire panel 
on the main stage uh, is really significant. And, you know, obviously they explored her life. They explored um, her significance of what she has to offer to the world today. But, you know, what I found out by talking to people there and talking to some of the organizers is that the idea for focusing on Dorothy Day at the meeting actually came from the Vatican. Uh, because the Vatican, uh, the Vatican Publishing House, just released a new version of one of Dorothy Day's autobiographical works called From Union Square to Rome. And the Pope wrote the preface of this book. With this book coming out, with the Pope sort of giving his endorsement of Dorothy Day yet again, keep in mind that he mentioned her uh, before Congress when he visited the U.S. in 2015, with the Pope kind of indicating his support for Dorothy Day and his conviction that she is a potential, uh, you know, witness for the world today, um, the, the meeting at Rimini kind of picked up the papal indicator and, and shared her with an even wider audience. And a lot of the people I talked to there, they hadn't heard of her before, but I think people, um, you know, were really struck by, A, how contemporary of a woman she is. I mean, she lived, you know, her lifespan most of the 20th century. And then B, I heard from a lot of people that that Dorothy Day's kind of complex, dramatic, even messy life at times, and we could get into that a bit, but it made her almost more relatable. It made her uh, like almost a tangible witness to sanctity, to, to hear from someone who's mixed up in communism for a while, to hear from someone who even tragically had an abortion. But then when she discovered the church and, and really decided that or recognized that this was the, was the truth, she was all in. Um, and so that's something that really stuck out to uh, to some of the people I met and talked to. And I think that's, quite frankly, probably a big part of the reason why Pope Francis is elevating her profile right now and maybe even indicating that her cause for canonization uh, may be uh, being viewed favorably in Rome. Yes, our newsroom really enjoyed hearing this news. And, and so we have an editorial, the Register has an editorial in our upcoming print edition, which is the September 10th print edition. And it's called Dorothy Day, A Witness for Today. And one of the things we talk about in that is that day is a true embodiment of the maxim that every sinner has a future and every saint has a past. And so she really can be a model of hope. I think in a world that's very divided and uh, where sometimes we feel hopeless. So I, I love focusing on Dorothy Day. And Jonathan, mm -hmm. I want to point out uh, that you wrote about Dorothy Day too. You wrote about this, um, uh, uh, these conversations at Rimini and it's called, that story is called A Potential American Saint's Big Day in Italy. So our listeners can go to ncregister.com and find both of those pieces well, let's turn, Jonathan, to the latest news. I mean, uh, we have the Pope right now in Mongolia. Uh, this is a four-day mm -hmm. trip. Um, he left August 31st. He's back September 4th. He's planning to meet with government officials, engage in interreligious dialogue, and offer mass for the country's small Catholic population. And when we are talking about small Catholic population, we're talking about about 1,400 Catholics uh, mm -hmm. in, a, in a population of 3.3 million. Most of those people are Buddhist. Um, but, but really the cause of a, a small Catholic uh, and Christian population is that for most of the last century, this country had a repressive regime, a communist re regime that really suppressed all 
uh, religion, and and that's how uh, the Catholic population dwindled. So we can kind of imagine why the Pope would want to go there. I mean, just to, to give hope to those Catholics who were there. Um, but what do we know, Jonathan, of this trip and what could be expected from it? Yeah, I think you're right, Jeanette. One perspective to look at it is the Pope going to the peripheries. Pope Francis has time and time again shown that he has a desire, you know, not to go to those old bastions of Christianity per se, but to go to small places, to go to forgotten places, to go to places in conflict, places on the margins. So Mongolia certainly fits that bill. It's, I mean, as you said, almost a microscopic Catholic population, but I think what a powerful witness for the Holy Father to go to this this community of, of 1,450 people and say, you matter too, right? Like, even though right. you're not big in numbers, um, you matter too. And imagine the fruit that can come from this in a place like Mongolia, uh, the Pope, you know, meeting with people providing service, the Pope meeting with diplomats, uh, the Pope celebrating mass and just being public, right? Being present to, in a community that, in, in a country that, that might not, not know much about the church or the Pope. So that's, that's one angle certainly is, uh, the, the, the sign of hope to the peripheries. Um, and that's important. Another angle that a lot of people are talking about, though, is the the sort of uh, geopolitical significance of this visit. Uh, if if we don't, you know, if we can't picture it on a map, Mongolia, a big country in its own right, is situated smack dab in between Russia and China. And of course, paying attention to events going on in the world right now, uh, the Pope uh, is very concerned with peace in Ukraine. And obviously Russia is the aggressor and China is a key ally of of Russia. So the Pope's already sent his his own uh, diplomat, uh, Cardinal Matteo Zuppi, uh, to both Ukraine, Russia, and then the U.S. and also China. Um, so now the Pope is going kind of uh, to the heart of, of a place that might have key strategic diplomatic value. There will be um, at, at his address to diplomats, for instance, we know that Russian diplomats, Chinese diplomats will be present. So there is an expectation that the Pope is going to talk about peace. He is going to use this stage uh, here in Mongolia to uh, to call for harmony in, in the region and in the world. There's even a rumor that on his flight back, uh, he, he might stop in Moscow. Uh, to meet Patriarch Kirill, who's the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. There's long been discussion about a potential face-to-face meeting between the two of them, and this could be uh, an opportunity for that. But it's you know it's one of those trips where it's a both end. It's both about going to the peripheries and going to this this community, but also um, some some kind of uh, church diplomacy exactly. machinations involved as well. And we can pray for that peace, that peace mission, that maybe hidden mission. It's also good to go to ncregister.com, and we have some color pieces there. Colm Flynn was spent a week in Mongolia just looking at the countryside and meeting people. That uh, story is titled, The Catholic Church in Mongolia, God Has Been Present With Us at ncregister.com. And also, EWTN News In-Depth had a, a very nice feature about Mongolia on September 1st. You can find that at YouTube. Uh, Jonathan, as we close, um, we have heard uh, rumors about a second Laudato Si that is now confirmed. 
um, we do have a, a, a papal encyclical or, or some kind of document following up on Laudato Si that's expected to come in October, October 4th, to mention that. That's news we found out this week. But as we close, Jonathan, you've been spending a lot of time preparing for the Synod on Synodality, and Pope Francis spoke about that this week. He specifically spoke about journalists' role in this. What did he have to say? Yeah, the Pope asked journalists uh, to to help communicate the truth of synodality, uh, or the Synod on Synodality, which of course is coming up in October. It'll be a month-long event, uh, a significant event in the life of the Church. You know, the Pope acknowledged that to a lot of people, the Synod on Synodality might seem kind of self-referential or technical, or it might be raise questions like, what's the point? Um, but he underscored that it's it's his belief that this is an important event in the life of the church, an opportunity uh, to move forward together, uh, to bring people together, uh, to to discuss um, and to to kind of make sure that everyone uh, is invited in the church. That's how he described it. Um, so he asked the journalists gathered, uh, yeah, to avoid sensationalism, uh, to avoid, you know, simply uh, kind of advancing a certain narrative to get clicks and things of that nature. So uh, we'll see if, if journalists take his advice. Of course, <laughs> you know, the Synod on Synodality is uh, a lot of people are interested in it and, and what it might lead to. Um, but exactly. that, that was the Pope's appeal, uh, right, to, to letting the truth prevail. One of the things he said is just, you know, don't hang on every word. Don't jump on us for every word. Just just wait and listen. <laughs> so we'll take that mm -hmm. advice, but um, we will be uh, following that synod closely. Jonathan, thanks so much for your reporting. Thanks, Jeanette. When we come back, we'll be joined by Joan Frawley Desmond as we talk about parental rights in education. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. If you need your news on the go, read the register online. But if you want to take your time and savor the stories, then subscribe to the National Catholic Register's print edition. And with award-winning Catholic journalism that goes beyond what you'll find from any secular news service, you'll get the real story behind the events that unfold over the course of the year. Try the register for free today and get it delivered to your home, office, or parish. Join the Catholics who depend on the Register for its faithful and courageous reporting. Get six issues free today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register, and I'm joined by the Register's Senior Editor, Joan Frawley Desmond. And we're talking about parental rights in education. The Catechism of the Catholic Church affirms that parents have the first responsibility for the education of their children. And, mother and f mothers and fathers, the Catechism says, retain their right both to teach their children morals imported, imparted by the Church, but also to choose a school for them that corresponds to their own convictions. So, you know, used to be that we would talk about school choice, Joan, <laughs> where that was the big thing. Everybody wanted some kind of voucher that would help them be able to choose the school of their choice for their children. 
But these days, we're having a lot more conversations uh, about parental rights in a different way, and that is talking about a school curriculum at a public school um, that is maybe going off the deep end, if you will, <laughs> on uh, certain issues uh, like uh, gender identity issues or critical race issues and things like that. So, Joan, I'm glad to have you back on talking about such an important issue. Thank you, Jeanette. I'm really happy to be with you. So our latest print edition, the September 10th edition, um, is has a special report about um, some nationwide efforts to promote parental rights, some groups that are really um, backing parents um, as they push back on politicized instruction that's taking more and more space in our schools. What's the significance of, of the latest developments in parental rights? I think people are really getting more energized. And it's something still relatively new. It really goes back to the pandemic. First parents were not pleased with online instruction, which in some districts dragged on for more than a year. Uh, They felt their children were losing ground, but they also started paying attention to what their children were learning in Mm -hmm. their virtual classroom. And they weren't always pleased with that. So that's when they first got engaged. And over time, the issues moved from masking and, and that kind of issue to politicized instruction, and then, you know, in some districts that have pushed the edge of the envelope also into a broader array of ways in which um, the politic, uh, you know, public schools might be restricting parental rights. And, of course, a big one is uh, children who may decide that they are, uh, are transgender, they want to change their pronouns, or they're confused, whatever, but they, they have requested some changes, maybe using another bathroom. And, you know, the school district may say, well, we're not going to tell the parent. In other cases, it might be, you know, a a graphic sex ed program that parents want to opt out from, but they feel like they're not informed about when this is going to be offered. Or or language arts um, materials that include information that parents feel is not appropriate for their child's age level. Yes, Joan. So in national media, you know, there's been a lot of, of, of information, stories on Governor Ron DeSantis's educational reforms in Florida, um, including what the critics of the, this law have called don't say gay law. So it's, it's basically um, making sure that material in the classroom um, is not uh, pushing a, a progressive agenda on uh, sexual identity. Um, but the media, national media hasn't said too much about, um, you know, a battle brewing in, in your own state of California. I know, uh, y- you know, this is something you have followed very, very closely. What's happening in California right now? Well, California really provides a cautionary tale. Let's just go back for a minute. The don't say gay law got huge amount of attention. And, you know, attacks were heaped on the governor and on the Florida legislature. You may recall Disney. You know, mm-hmm. there was a whole issue with DeSantis and Disney, whether Disney endorsed this, this curriculum that parents felt was controversial. So huge amount of attention on that. And that whole debate was framed as an attack on LGBTQ students and teachers. Um, but now we have California, which has not gotten the same level of attention, which could change soon. It is getting attention within the state. The question is, will that move beyond the state? But in the state, uh, we have a brewing battle over similar issues. And, you know, California is a a cutting-edge state that often leads the way. So, you know, it's pushing the edge of the envelope. 
and it's offering, you know, a different look on this issue. Suddenly, it's now like how far can a state go to defend the rights, um, as they see it, of, of LGBTQ students, even when that completely severs parental ability to, to affect the upbringing and future of their child. Just to give you some idea, we have classroom issues, um, which include sex ed um, and language arts, as in, as in Montgomery County, um, another, another brewing battle there, which has gone to court. But you also have other related issues. Foster care parents, um, if they don't embrace gender-affirming care and, and won't sign up to it, cannot um, foster children who might, in the future, may, maybe not even right now, decide they're transgender. Uh, custody battles can be affected by whether a parent approves or opposes gender-affirming care. So we're going well beyond the classroom, but it's all connected and it's raising questions about where California is going and whether parental, uh, parental activists can do anything to kind of, you know, push back effectively. You know, they're, they're very much in a minority in California. Right. So in California, the California Attorney General actually filed a lawsuit against Chino, California, school board. What provoked the lawsuit? What's this, what are the specifics? Okay, it's going to be surprising to people in other states where this isn't even a big issue, but the Chino School Board, which is one of a handful of more conservative school boards, you know, which were elected and, and are representing the people in that place, very much uh, you know, part of local control philosophy, they, um, they opted to pass a rule saying that if a child uh, wanted to change pronouns, use a different bathroom, uh, that didn't correspond it with their biological sex, that the school had to inform the parents within a couple of days. And this has provoked the ear of the, the state attorney general who's filed suit. Um, other school boards uh, advocating similar positions have been visited by the state superintendent of public education, the, you know, the school superintendent. And then, meanwhile, the governor has also threatened to... to to um, impose fines on a, a school district that was trying to opt out of a controversial uh, social studies uh, textbook, which had praised um, praised uh, the the LGBTQ activist Harvey Milk as as kind of a hero. So that's a position that some people may agree with, but the parents don't agree with it, and they don't want their children taught that. So they want to opt out of that, um, or or you know, find another textbook is what the school board had wanted to do, and they were uh, threatened with fines, and at this point they backed off. Right, John. So you talked to uh, Kathleen Domingo, who's the director of the California Catholic Conference, about uh, this battle, the parental rights battle in your state of California, but also, you know, in these battles across uh, the country, I believe. And what did she have to say about these kinds of battles? You know, she's a very measured person. She isn't one to escalate any sort of culture war. But I was surprised what she had to say. She basically feels that parents who are concerned about these issues are reaching an impasse. She noted, for example, you know, many of us forget a lot of uh, people of faith have gotten involved in, in local school boards. You know, they were told, if you want to affect change, then get involved. So they did get involved. And they're on these school boards. That's one reason why some of these school boards are, are opting for different approaches than is the norm in other parts of the state. 
Um, but now that they have done that, the state is now trying to block them and even challenging their right to be on a school board. So she says we're now moving to kind of a brewing impasse. You have you have these issues. That can the parents opt out? No, they can't necessarily opt their children out. And so the more issues you have, the more parents um, who care about these issues and feel that they need to take control back um, of their child's education from what they see as harmful elements, they are going to have to opt out and, and perhaps choose homeschooling, private education, which in California is not easy to do. Not only was the state not set up for a lot of private education, the public system you know, in the past was really excellent. It's not as good as it once was. But, um, but you just don't have as many schools available to people, and a lot of them are very expensive. And then the third one, she just said baldly, you know, they may have to leave the state. Right, right, and you do see that you see an exodus from California uh, mm-hmm. to other con- uh, to other states. Uh, Colorado was one of those. I lived there, and I saw that um, them receive so many people from California. But you're totally right, Joan, about the about the COVID years helping parents to just be more connected um, to their kids' education and and wanting to take action, wanting them um, to grow in in virtue and and to to be on the right path. So it, this is a great movement to watch. I thank you for watching it. The Register is watching it. I invite our listeners to go to ncregister.com, type in the search bar, parental rights, and you'll find these stories and a lot more. So please check out the National Catholic Register at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. For all of the Register team and for our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello, and until next week, I pray God bless you. For more information about the National Catholic Register and about Register Radio, go to ncregister.com. Podcasts of Register Radio are posted on ncregister.com and on ewtn.com. Join us next week at this time for Register Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.